Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the Providence Journal's College Basketball Podcast. This is Bill Koch, uh, here from our downtown studios in Providence. Uh, I'm a sports writer with the Journal, and I'm joined by my co-conspirator for the day from WPRI 12 in Fox Providence, Maury Hirsch-Gordon. Maury, how are we living? Bill, what's going on? Late Friday morning here on this taping. Uh, got myself a nice diner brunch this morning. Haven't been to a diner in... Maybe a couple months now. Wow, seriously, uh, I've been missing that. Omelet, whether it was an omelet, whether it was some pancakes, I'm full. I don't feel like I have to eat for another couple hours, so I'm, uh, I'm here. I'm ready to talk some hoops. Good for you. Good for you. That's that's the ideal way to start the day. I uh, I started off with some oatmeal and a banana, and and if folks saw Maury and I like standing next to each other, they might assume that I went for the omelet and the Rubens and all that stuff, and he had the healthy breakfast. Um, you know, the the handsome fit TV guy, you know, just can still dig into the diner and not gain ten pounds in one meal. It's it's a beautiful every once, thing. Every once in every once in a while, there's some cheat meals, uh, <laughs> right. and nothing like some blueberry pancakes. With a whole load of butter and a lot of syrup. Good for you. Good for you. I, I endorse that. Um, yeah, and, and I think it's important, you know, every once in a while, uh, living in these difficult times that we are, if you want to have some comfort food, go right ahead. I mean, really, we've all earned it the last year or so. We, we really have. Um, we're, we're obviously still dealing with COVID-19, and, and we are fully aware of that. Uh, and that hits home uh, here in Rhode Island on the basketball scene this week with the unfortunate news on Thursday that Bryant, uh, the men's program at Bryant, is going to go on pause. Uh, Bryant was scheduled to host Mount St. Mary's in a two-game Northeast Conference series. Uh, Bryant received word late Wednesday night that one of their players had tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, so the Bulldogs have begun to quarantine. Uh, some players will move into a local hotel. Uh, some others who live in suites on campus who have individual bedrooms will stay in those bedrooms uh, for a period of seven to ten days. Uh, you know, and you you shift from planning for basketball games, game planning for opponents, worrying about travel, to how are my kids going to eat? Uh, what's their mental health going to be? Um, you know, all quality of life concerns at this point for Jared Grasso. Uh, he addressed some of that on a Thursday Zoom call with us. And uh, Maury, you know, obviously, uh, Bryant's had a, a good season to this point. Um, you know, been able to stay on the floor. We've been able to talk about the fact that they've been contenders in the Northeast Conference. Um, you know, this is this is really unfortunate news for for Jared and the Bulldogs. It's the first local program, Bill. Uh, that has gone on this COVID pause. Men's program, URI, right? Yeah. Men's program, exactly. Yeah. URI and PC and Brian up until a couple of days ago were, were all good. And I know we had touched on that uh, in previous pods and you and Quiddy as well. And um, so I think, first of all, we have to commend the teams for getting this far. And unfortunately, maybe it was sort of, uh, you know, just inevitable uh, the fact that. Yeah. Uh, it's out there. A lot of teams have had it. Teams in the Northeast, teams that uh, Brian, URI, and PC have played. And unfortunately, Brian comes down with it now, and, and it could come at a uh, more difficult time in the schedule. You're coming off of, off of two road losses uh, at Fairleigh Dickinson. Fairleigh Dickinson coming into the weekend was last in the conference in terms of record, but has good senior guards, senior leadership, had been to an NCAA tournament, and as we talked about, was the NEC preseason pick uh, to win the year. So Brian comes off two tough losses. Uh, first game, they, they probably look back in a few weeks and wish they had uh, but now you have to have 
couple weeks off. Um, you were going to be home, which they haven't been home that much in conference play, so they were going to be able to come home and maybe right the ship. And They have mentally tough guys. It starts with Jared Grosso. He's been here before at Iona. Uh, won a lot of games in February and March, so losing two games wasn't going to scare him. Uh, they just He just wants to get right back on the court. He wants to practice, he wants to play, and he wants to right the ship. Uh, same with his players. So uh, it's just a really tough tough time for Brian to have to go on this pause here. Um, and, and hopefully the, the biggest concern is the style that they play, Bill, the way that they like to get up and down the court. How will the time away from the court not being able to even do individual drills uh, affect their style and their tempo of play once they try to return. Yeah, there's a premium on conditioning there when you want to get up and down. Uh, you know, Bryant is still in the top three in terms of adjusted tempo f- uh, for Ken Palm. 76 possessions a game. You're playing a little bit of a track meet. And, and if you're going to be down for seven to ten days with no physical activity, uh, you it is worth wondering how you're going to look once you get back on the floor and, and all your guys are healthy. Uh, you know, Maury, you also alluded to the fact that Bryant was coming off a 15-day bye uh, before their first game against Fairleigh Dickinson. And now being shut down for at least seven to ten days, their next scheduled game is February 17th against Merrimack. They're, they're looking at essentially playing two games in a month, um, you know, which is really hard to do at any point in the season. But particularly now that we're getting down to the business end here, you know, you get into February, you can see March there on the horizon. This is the point in the season where you want to be playing your best basketball. You want to be peaking. Uh, and Bryant is generally going to be inactive. Uh, you know, So a really difficult spot for, for them to be in from a basketball perspective. Uh, you know, Just from a personal perspective, we, we hope that their guys are healthy. We hope that they come through this okay. Um, you know, that there are no more positive tests uh, within the next few days. But just on court, you, you alluded to this as well, being swept at Fairleigh Dickinson the first time they've lost back-to-back games this season, uh, 81-79 in the first, 95-84 in the second. Uh, Maury, they had the first one. That was the one that they had to win. Charles Pride makes a three-pointer late. You have a nice lead. Uh, and then just some time and score stuff and, and some game situational stuff down the stretch, uh, giving up threes instead of twos. Uh, you had an untimely foul. You allowed Fairleigh Dickinson to score twice with the clock stopped. Uh, that first game w- was certainly the one that they needed to take for the weekend split uh, because they didn't really get much going in the second half of the second one. Bryant's had some, some late-game struggles this year. They've blown some second-half leads. Uh, I think I believe three of their four losses at that point had all come from blowing second-half leads, and when you have a seven-point lead with a minute 30 to go and you're on the road in conference play, those are the games that you're going to look back and say, man, not only would it be nice to have them in the win column as you try to make a playoff in a postseason that is shrunk down from from eight teams to four this year, uh, but you also want to avoid getting swept. Ed Cooley talks about it in the Big East. David Cox talks about it in the A-10. Especially with these two-game series now, you can split your road games and, and maybe win 75% of your home games, that puts together a really nice conference record. One other thing I wanted to mention uh, with this, Bill, is just drawing a, a little a little parallel here. St. Louis and the 810, who, who we're very aware of and follow pretty closely due to Rhode Island, yep. uh, hadn't played a conference game in what had been about a month or five weeks uh, due to a COVID shutdown. I forget the amount of time exactly. Yeah, they were down from late December to late January. Sure, so it was about a month. Top 25 team yep. had looked 
fairly good in the out-of-conference and seem to be the odds-on favorite in the A-10, them and Richmond at the top. Same with Bryant. Bryant had a good out-of-conference. They were 6-2 and two, uh, before the Fairleigh Dickinson series and uh, looking to be a contender for an NEC regular season title. Uh, St. Louis comes back out of the pause and loses two games. They lost at home to Dayton. Tough team, hungry team, a team that, that, that wanted to win. But then they go to LaSalle. Uh, a team who's beaten a couple of the top teams in the A-10, but we know they're still in, in a rebuilding phase uh, there in Philadelphia. So um, you see St. Louis 0-2 right now in the A-10 coming off before we pause. How will this pause affect Bryant, a team that also was atop their league? Uh, and like we mentioned, the way that they like to play and the physicality and, and the pace and the tempo, uh, there's a lot of factors now that, that sort of start to, start to worry uh, if you're Bryant. Um, how will this pause affect them? And, uh, it's going to be really tough uh, for them for them to come back. So, uh, first of all, like you mentioned, just hope they, they get through this safe and healthy and everyone's okay. But once you can start focusing on basketball again, uh, there's a lot of measures that have to be taken in order to get in order to get back, you know, closer to the top of the league. I know they're in third place right now. They're they're a game back in the loss column. Um, but you can't slip any further or else you're not going to make the playoffs. You know, you just look at the Northeast Conference standings and, and you look at the way this has bunched up. Um, Bryant, now, if if you look back at, at the first game against Fairleigh Dickinson, you managed to win that one, you get a split. You're a three-loss team. You'd be leading the league. Instead, you're one of seven teams right now with four losses uh, in the NEC. Uh, you have a 6-4 and four record that's identical to LIU. Uh, Mount St. Mary's, Fairleigh Dickinson, Merrimack, all 5-4. and four. St. Francis, Brooklyn, 4-4. Four and four. Wagner, 3-4. and four. Why does that matter? Well, most years, the NEC tournament is eight teams, which means Bryant would be fairly comfortable. They, they have a bit of a buffer on the bottom two, Central Connecticut, St. Francis, PA. Uh, they'd be a game ahead of Sacred Heart in the loss column. But this year, the NEC tournament's only four teams. And, and so now, you know, Bryant has put a little bit of pressure on themselves here coming into the stretch. You know, not only losing two games to Fairleigh Dickinson, which means you don't have any chance of a tiebreaker with those two, but if they do opt to reschedule these four games down the stretch, uh, you still have two with Merrimack, and you have two with LIU, which don't figure to be easy. They're, they're going to be playing for a spot in that tournament like you are. Um, you know, those eight games left, you know, all of a sudden now, Brian's going to have a little bit of heat on themselves, where to start the year, it looked like it was going to be a little more comfortable getting into that top four. No doubt. Um, and there's not a huge talent gap in the NEC. We talk about it a lot different than other conferences. So uh, any given night, any team can, can win in the NEC. And it's just going to be a lot tougher for Bryant than it was, you know, than we thought it was seven days ago. You know, oddly enough, we, we think uh, at this point still that, that Bryant, out of our three local teams who are active, uh, Bryant at this point still might have the best chance to make the NCAA tournament. Uh, they've probably shown the most ceiling relative to their conference um coming into the week or, or maybe coming into last week uh, it looked like providence still had a window to to secure an at-large berth into the ncaa tournament uh maury i i think you'd agree that 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 has passed now uh you know the friars are in big trouble here uh, they've lost six out of their last eight the latest was a 60 43 setback against seton hall on wednesday uh, that's coming off a one-point loss at Georgetown on Saturday, 73-72. Uh, 
uh, a game where they gave up 17 offensive rebounds and, and really got beat up on the boards. Uh, you know, Maury, I, I would, I would, I think back to Ed Cooley's post game on Wednesday. Um, I don't want to say that that he was resigned in any way. To, to what happened because I don't think that's the kind of guy he is um, but I think he is very aware at this point that his team is in major trouble um, you know he can't get them to play the way he needs them to play um, and the question now you have to ask is does he have the players necessary to play the way he wants to play it's 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 really uh, you know I, I can't remember aside from the season that they went to the NIT um, you know, I can't remember a Providence team looking like this in, in quite a while. No, and not this late in the season. You know, guys are usually meshing at this point, and the one thing that they can hang their hat on is being the toughest defensive team in the Big East. Long, athletic, uh, they, they want to drag you through the mud, and they want to play games in the high 50s and in the 60s. Uh, and when you can't rely on your defense, which has been your calling card for, the, you know, the last six, seven years, for as long as Ed Cooley's been, been getting – PC to the big dance consistently, then they're going to be in big trouble. Uh, I think, though, the big thing here is PC needs everything to be perfect in order to win. They need special games from David Duke and Nate Watson. They need them to be at or over their 20-point-a-game average. Uh, they need to play good defense, which they've shown that they that they can't for long stretches. They've shown uh, at times that they, that they are capable of playing great defense, but it just doesn't stick around for long enough. They need to limit turnovers, and they need to catch a few breaks. Um, and when everything needs to be perfect, and then you're starting to battle an injury bug in not having a Jimmy Nichols Wednesday against Seton Hall, you're still playing without Allen, without Jared Bynum, just becomes uh, much tougher uh, for PC. And uh, you would have hoped they would split against Georgetown and, and Seton Hall. You knew that uh, coming in, especially on Wednesday, Seton Hall had lost uh, their first matchup with PC. Uh, at the in, in New Jersey earlier on in the season in an overtime game. So you knew that Seton Hall was going to come in hungry. Seton Hall, a fellow bubble team like Providence, uh, I believe at the time, according to ESPN's bracketologist Joe Lenardi, they were on uh, the right side of the bubble, but just barely. They were one of yep. those last four teams in. PC was probably 8 to 10 or 15 spots behind them. But if you sweep a team like Seton Hall, then when it becomes the eye test, then once you start looking at March Madness as the – as it comes into clearer focus in a couple weeks, PC has the upper hand over a seat hall team, as long as they're, they're about the same at the Big East Conference. But uh, not now. The, the teams have split, uh, and PC is, is really starting to fade. You look at last season, they were 13-12, and 6-6 and six, uh, in February, and they won their last six straight. Uh, I don't want to say that PC has no chance at the NCAA tournament from an at-large perspective, but at nine and nine and five and seven with seven games left, you probably have to win six of seven. Uh, and another thing is, last year you had a lot of opportunities for top twenty-five wins. You had a Marquette team, you had Seton Hall, Villanova, Creighton, and I believe Butler was in the top twenty-five at that time last year. Xavier was also a fellow bubble team. This year, you just don't have those opportunities. You've already played Creighton twice. You have one more game left at home against Villanova. Uh, but the teams like UConn, the teams like Xavier, you have a game at DePaul, you have a couple against St. John's, those don't carry the same weight. 
like the late season wins last year. You really only have two games that are going to be solidly in Quadrant 1. Uh, that's at UConn and then Villanova at home to finish the regular season. Th- those two you can bank on as being Quadrant 1 games. The, r- the rest you would be hoping. Uh, you know, Maybe Xavier could squeeze into the top 30 and that would be a Quad 1 game at home. You know, If UConn can squeeze into the top 30, maybe that would be another Quad 1 game at home. Um, you know, but realistically right now you're, you're only looking at two of those chances. Um, you know, the, there there are some decent games in there in terms of quadrant two, but Providence really needs to move the needle if they were going to have any chance at an at large, and and I I just feel like that's that's probably passed at this point. Uh, you know, I look at Seton Hall. Um, you know, the other night you you have a chance to sweep them after beating them on the road earlier this year in overtime. You're in a one point game with 13:30 to play, and Providence scores 10 points the rest of the way. Uh, it's 34-33, and they just go ice cold from there. Uh, Seton Hall actually has the lead by one on the road in a game where they were 0 for 16 from three at, at that point. Uh, you know, the, the Pirates were just, they were tougher, they were edgier, uh, they managed to produce offensively at the right time. Um, you know, they went on a 12-2 run from there to, to open it up. Uh, you know, at that point, Seton Hall was outscoring Providence. They had a 46-35 lead uh, to the under eight timeout in the second half. They were outscoring Providence 32 to 14 in the paint. They only had four turnovers. Providence had 14. Um, you know, that's how you spread a game out. Um, you know, I'm I'm looking at PC, and, and I'm just thinking to myself, Maury. Uh, you know, David Duke had another tough night: six points, six turnovers. Uh, you know, Nate Watson w- was sort of a non-factor compared to what he was earlier this year. I look at PC and I wonder, you know, just how honestly teams have to play against them at, at this point. I, I see teams just loading up on David Duke and loading up on Nate Watson. And essentially daring the other three players on the court to, to beat them. I, I, I don't think that if you're playing against PC right now, you don't really need to play against them with much integrity. Um, you know, outside of AJ Reeves going off at Georgetown the other day, 28 points, 22 in the first half. Um, are you really scared of Jimmy Nichols or Ed Croswell or Greg Gant or Noah Horkler? Are, are you really scared of. Of Alan Breed, you know, going for 25 or, or 30 or something like that. Uh, you know, the other night, Providence plays Bryson Goodine 25 minutes. Um, you know, we hadn't seen br- much of Bryson Goodine at all since early in the non conference schedule. Uh, you know, so do you really think that he's going to go out and score 15, 20 points in a game? I, I just, if, if I'm an opponent and I'm preparing a scout and I'm looking at Providence, I'm just going to load up on the two guys who are out front. And I'm going to allow the other three to do whatever they wish. I I don't think that those other three guys on the floor, whoever they may be at any given point, are going to be good enough to beat me. And I I think that's a serious problem that Providence is having right now. They're not even good enough to beat you. I don't even think have the offensive capabilities to take over a game, to put the ball on the floor, to get to the hoop, to to hit outside shots. Uh, If there's one person, it's going to have to be A.J. Reeves. We're 20 games into his junior year now, so he's played almost three full seasons. I know he was injured and, and banged up last year, and, and or his freshman year, I should say, but uh, you can't play 35 minutes if you're A.J. Reeves uh, and only attempt five shots. You have to at least try uh, to, to generate some offense when you see that your partner, David Duke and, and Nate Watson, uh, aren't having nights that, that they've been accustomed to this year. Uh, Greg Gant, 
Noah Horkler. These are guys that, that haven't been able to shoot the ball well. So uh, even if your other teams in your game planning against Providence, you don't even have to extend the defense out beyond the perimeter. You know, off the top of my head, maybe they're combined their power forward position is shooting around 30% from three, and that might be generous. Um, so you can really pack it in uh, and, and dare guys to shoot it. Uh, so it's whether it's Gant, whether it's Horkler, whether it's Reeves, uh, Alan Bree only played 13 minutes on Wednesday. These are the guys that, that are going to have to step up and, and shoot the ball and, and hope it goes in. They need to shoot it confidently. They've each had uh, solid games individually this year. They need to put it together collectively if David Duke and Nate Watson don't have the games they've, they've had, a Jimmy Nichols is out, who's another reliable body, uh, and you're not playing great defense. You're going you're gonna to have to get into the 60s uh, in order to compete. Yeah, Jimmy Nichols uh, missed the other night against Seton Hall with a non-COVID illness. Uh, I would imagine he'll be day-to-day into the weekend. Uh, Ed Cooley pretty much tried everything from, from a lineup perspective. I, I know at one point he had, he went really small and had four guards out there. He was playing Breed, Duke, Reeves, and Goodine. Uh, at one point he tried to play big, and he had three forwards out there, Gant, Horkler, and, and Watson. Um, you know, just, just searching. This is the life of a coach. You're When you're struggling and your team is having a hard time, you're just searching for, for something. You know, maybe something clicks in the middle of a game. Uh, you know, maybe a player gets unlocked by playing with two other guys who he normally doesn't play with. Um, you know, that you're having to do this 17, 18 games into the year just, just speaks to where Providence is at this point. Uh, they put themselves behind the eight ball with losses like the one they had at Georgetown. Uh, 73-72. The Hoyas are coming out of a three-week COVID pause. Providence has a 15-point lead in the first half. And they let it slip away down the stretch. Uh, you know, and Ed Cooley mentioned it. You know, David Duke misses the second free throw uh, with 1.5 seconds left, and, and they lose the game. But Ed Cooley said it, and he's right. It's not the free throw that loses you the game. It's the fact that you can't finish defensive possessions with a rebound. The the fact that Georgetown grabbed 42.5% of their misses in that game. Uh, Providence, out of their nine losses this year, uh, seven of those, they've given up more than 32% on the offensive glass. Uh, you know, You work so hard to get a stop. But then you can't finish the possession. It, it's demoralizing when it happens over and over again over 40 minutes. And you know, I just think I look back at Providence when they were seven and three and, and three and one in the Big East, and I look at where they are now, nine and nine and five and seven. If they happen to lose to St. John's on Saturday, who is red hot at this point, they've won five in a row. Providence hasn't been nine and ten after 19 games in 15 years. So you, you just consider you know how much this has to be wearing on the coaching staff, the players, after they were picked preseason third, after they had some success early, uh, you know after it looked like they could turn it, winning at Creighton, uh, beating Marquette at home in overtime. Those were two wins where you felt like if Providence was going to have a turning point, those were great opportunities to do that. And it just has not happened. Uh, and they go into this weekend against St. John's, really. Uh, Maury, I, I have no idea, Saturday at 2 p.m. on Fox Sports 1, I, I have no idea what I would predict in terms of a result for that one. No, I mean, not at all. You have to, you have to though, take uh, how well St. John's has played of late. Like you mentioned, five straight wins, including a pretty dominant win uh, over, over a top-five Villanova team most recently. Uh, and then you look at PC, and they've 
they've lost six of eight. So, I mean, my, I don't know what the, what the early line is on that one when it comes out, but I would say St. John's might be favored by a point, might be a pick em. Um You can't factor in a home court advantage. You can't factor in crowd because there is none this year. Uh, PC has relied on that down the stretch in February in recent seasons. So I, I don't really know. Um, back to the Georgetown game, Bill. I thought the game might have slipped midway through the first half when PC had that 15-point lead. Um, yeah. Pricing came in for a couple minutes. Uh, I believe there was only one, maybe two starters out on the floor. It just seemed like a mindset change. Uh, they're, they're about 10, 11 minutes in that, oh, maybe we can cruise. Maybe we can rest some guys that haven't gotten a whole lot of rest, specifically in the backcourt this season. Uh, and that wasn't the case, so I thought that might have been a turning point in the Georgetown game. Uh, and then with David Duke, I think he's shooting around 30% uh, the last six games. According to my math, 25 of 87, uh, if I can add and subtract there. So, um, starting to slip a little bit. Had a really nice game at Xavier when he put up 31 after Jared Bynum went out against Creighton at home early in January. But then the, the, these last six games uh, has been a shell of, the form, of his former self. And you have to maybe chalk it up to a couple different things. One, teams, like you mentioned, have have game planned for him and game planned for Nate Watson, so that's one factor. Another factor, like we mentioned, is uh, just the lack of offensive firepower around him. Um, And then just the wear and tear of a season, uh, mentally and physically. It's a really tough season to to dig yourself out of this type of hole when you don't have fans to get you going. You don't have much to look forward to. You're not seeing the campus buzzing, getting ready for a game night. So really hard to, to find that within yourself. Uh, different than last season when PC won six straight to end the year and locked up an at-large spot prior to the Big East tournament. So uh, PC's in a tough spot. Have they done it before? Yes. Can they do it? They could. Uh, but like I mentioned sort of off the top when we transitioned to PC, everything's got to be perfect or close to perfect if they want to pull out games. And, and even when it is perfect, they're still going to be in games that are decided by one or two possessions. Yeah, David had uh, 31 in a home win over Marquette in overtime, uh, but his other five games in, in that six-game stretch, he has struggled. Uh, 17, 12, 10, 5, and 6. Uh, those are just not numbers that, that you would have thought you would have seen earlier in the season. Um, you know, and, and you know, I know we, we both think the world of David, I, I know that there's you know, there's no one who's been harder on David than himself. Uh, I would imagine, uh, you know, over these last few weeks, um, I know he feels a responsibility to to lead this team. Um, you know, the way he did earlier in the season with his performance. Um, you know, certainly if if not in his mannerisms and, and his attitude, but with his performance as well. Um, you know, and it, it has been a difficult spot for him and, and a difficult spot for them uh, as a collective. Um, so Providence goes into Saturday against St. John's. That's a 2 p.m. tip on Fox Sports 1. Uh, like you mentioned, that that's probably going to be you know, somewhere around a coin flip game, one-point game either way uh, at your local establishments. Uh, you know, you're probably looking at some sort of St. John's minus one, PC minus one. You know, somewhere in there, the line's going to fluctuate a little bit. Uh, St. John's able to win that game. Who knows? They might be ranked next week. Uh, you know, six-game winning streak in the Big East. Uh, I mean, they would they would be making a serious push uh, to at least receive votes, if not sneak into the back end of the top twenty-five. 
um, and, and certainly playing themselves onto the NCAA tournament bubble, if not into the bottom of the field. Uh, at this point. So St. John's, you would think, would be sensing opportunity here to, to try and continue what has been a nice stretch for them. Uh, Maury, we, we saw another team on Wednesday night who, who was trying to claw their way into the dance, and that's VCU. Uh, they visited Rhode Island in the latest, you know, just real grudge match classic between these two teams. Uh, dramatic at the end. Couldn't have asked for for much more if you were neutral in terms of uh, you know theater there. Um, what happened inside the last five seconds? Um, and unlike in recent games between URI and VCU, it was VCU winning 63-62 uh, on a late three pointer by Bones Highland. Um, URI for for all their struggles this season has had VCU's number. They've won 9 out of 10 against them. Uh, VCU hadn't won in Kingston in 6 years. Uh, but you're looking at URI, uh, you know, just just there are certain years where you're winning and things happen and they always seem to go in your favor. There are other years where you struggle, where you might be a 500 team or losing team, and those certain things happen and they go against you. And I think Wednesday was another example of that for URI. Uh, you know, they get a defensive stop and they can't get a defensive rebound at the end. VCU kicks it out. Bones Highland hits a three. URI looks like they're going to get bailed out. Ishmael Leggett gets fouled, crossing midcourt. He goes to line for a one-and-one with 1.4 seconds left, and he misses the first one, uh, which is unfortunate because he had a great night prior to that. Um, you know, Arguably the best game of his career, his young career as a freshman at URI. Um, but more, it, it was just... You know, it's it's unfortunate in Kingston. It's just more of the same. Um, you know, games that they are competitive in, uh, games that they have every chance of winning, uh, and games ultimately that, for one reason or another, you know, they just end up falling short at the final horn. Oh, this is just an ideal 500 club. Uh, we've talked about that for a couple weeks now. They have the talent to be a top four team in the A10. They lack the IQ on a consistent basis and they lack important fundamentals uh, that continue to lower the ceiling uh, on their potential. Specifically with the fundamentals, just a couple different areas I want to touch on, Bill. Um, Passing the ball, uh, whether it's inserting the ball into the low post from a guard, from a senior guard. um, Ball fakes are are not good. Um, Bounce passes are not good. Cross-court passes, uh, whether you're in the half court or whether you're in transition, not leading guys in great spots, not choosing the right spots uh, to move the ball around the court, has been really poor. A lot of the times uh, they want to go one-on-one. Guards catch the ball in the perimeter and immediately, A, drop their head, and B, put the ball on the floor. They don't even look around to see if somebody else is open. Right. Reviewing some of that tape from the BCU game. Shot selection, we talked about it before we started – uh, the podcast. They shoot the ball when they should, and they don't shoot the shots that they should. <laughs> right. uh, I mean, it's it's completely backwards here, and you can tell on the court. You know, late in the shot clock, whether it was, it was Antoine Walker in the second half or Malik Martin, I'm remembering, have open, whatever, 12, 15, 18-foot jump shots, catch and shoot the ball. David Cox turns and says, shoot the ball. Not only is the shot clock running out, those are shots that you're walking into. There's they wouldn't be contested. Then a couple possessions later, guys 
you know, you receive a first pass on the wing, first pass of the possession, 20 seconds left on the shot clock, and you're shooting an open shot. There, there's just the IQ uh, is the biggest thing that just continues to baffle me. And, and the guys have all the talent in the world, and, and we can stand by that based on games that they've won. They beat a Seton Hall team. Uh, they beat a San Francisco team who's solid. They, they've hung in other games. They won at VCU. They won at VCU. Won at VCU. They were going for a sweep the other night. Won at VCU. Played well at Richmond, at least offensively. Um, you know, turned the ball over a lot, played bad defense, but shot. I don't, I don't have it in front of me. No, shot very well. They did. Percent from the court, maybe, maybe even higher. So things are there, but then there's other things that aren't. And then the, the other big thing is, and it burned them on the final possession, uh, and I put something out uh, on WPRI.com, and it was very quick. Um, but just the lack of closeouts and the, and the lack of um, good closeouts. So uh, what I mean by that is closing out on shooters, coming out with choppy feet, staying low to A, prevent a driving kick situation in case there's a ball fake. And B, once the shot goes up and you can test it, turning around, finding a body, and pushing the body out of the way, holding it there for a second or two, and then walking in to get a rebound. These guys fly by shooters all the time. They leave their feet. They end up behind shooters and out of the play. When you can test the shot bill and you run past the shooter, it's an automatic five-on-four for the other team. Right. And who has the best vision to get an offensive rebound? The guy who shot the ball. Right. And it came back to haunt them in the last possession. It started with bad defensive communication between D.J. Johnson and Mikhail Mitchell. VCU chose not to throw a bounce pass to a big man that was sitting in the paint all alone for a tie. They decide to swing the ball. Uh, the collapse happens, and... Um, URI flies by a ton of shooters, and that's how Bones Highland gives a little simple head fake. Malik Martin flies by him, uh, and he's got plenty of time to settle and, and eventually hit the game-winning shot. Yeah, you, you end up scrambling because you're not in position to, to begin with. I, I, I thought the clip that, that you put out on Twitter, I thought that was pretty instructive. Just you know, from the standpoint of, of closeouts, uh, you know, finding bodies when you're rebounding, uh, you know, not giving away baseline to, to drivers uh, at a couple points. VCU got baseline, and you know, they were able to draw defense to them, interior defense, and, and that led to either a pass for a layup uh, or for positioning on an offensive rebound, you you had a big that didn't have a body on him. Um, you know the, these are just these are just the smaller details uh, that go into being nine and nine instead of fourteen and five. You know, or, or thirteen and five. My math is terrible. Fourteen and four, something like that. Um, you know, the other things obviously, URI has been a high turnover team all year. Uh, they had sixteen the other night. Um, the shot selection, you you mentioned it. Uh, you know, I, I certainly think that that there are times where you know they either settle on the perimeter uh, or you have guys taking shots that that quite frankly they shouldn't be allowed to take. Um, you know, and and I would. You know, I know that you don't want your team to play tight. I, I know that you don't want to restrict them. You, you want to give them freedom on offense. You, you want to reward them if, if they defend, which you or I did the other night. Uh, you know, they played hard at that end of the court. Uh, you know, VCU w- was not exactly out there painting a masterpiece at, at the offensive end either, and, and you or I had a lot to do with that. Um, you know, but there has to be just consistent habits with your decision making. Um, you know, the, players have to have an idea of what their strengths and weaknesses are, and and if they don't arrive at those conclusions on their own, 
that's what the coaching staff is there for. You know, that sort of instruction. So when when Alan Beatran comes down in the first half, you know, maybe two on five, and he pulls up for a wing three pointer that, that barely catches any rim. Okay, he does that once. He does it twice in a game. He does it consistently game to game to game. That's the sort of thing that that you just need to weed out of your offense. You need to weed out of your game, your all-court game. Um, And and it feels like each individual player for your eye you know, might have one of those two habits that that need to be weeded out. Um, You know, the other night, you're looking at Ishmael Leggett, makes his second career start. Fats Russell is still ailing, uh, has a core muscle injury. He has a right ankle injury that limited him in the second half uh, at Dayton, which was a 67-56 loss over the weekend, a, a game that you know you or I just sort of got run over coming out of the locker room. They had a three-point lead at the half. Uh, Dayton went on a 15-0 run to start the second half. It was pretty clear that, that Fats wasn't 100%, hasn't been 100% for a while, if at all, this season. Uh, you know, So you sit him the other night against VCU. Uh, he was the best player on the floor in the road win in that game, had 23 points and nine boards, so you're, you're obviously missing something there. Uh, but Leggett played very well in, in this game. Uh, had 17 points, which is a career high. Led four in double figures for URI. He was six for 11 from the field. Uh, only one assist, but only two turnovers in, in 35 minutes, which is pretty good against a team that is you know, a top 10 turnover defense in the country. Um, you know, Pretty composed performance for a freshman. Uh, I, I drew the parallel on Twitter after the game. I, I think it's important to get an idea of, of what kind of person Ishleg it is. Uh, he went to David Cox and, and said, you know, essentially that, that he was sorry, uh, that he was crushed, that he missed the front end of the one-and-one one in, in the last couple seconds. I think back to a few years ago when E.C. Matthews was a freshman at URI, and he missed the last second shot against Providence. And they lost the game at the Ryan Center by a point. And E.C. Matthews, freshman version, playing his first few games at URI, goes up to Dan Hurley in the locker room in front of his team and apologizes for missing the shot. Um, which is just, it's not something that a player should ever have to do. Um, you, you make a bad decision, uh, or you break curfew, or you get suspended. Those are the sort of things that you apologize to teammates for. Not missing a shot, but the, the character, the expectation of kids like that, the bar that they would like to set, in terms of program standards, in terms of winning, if you have guys like E.C. Matthews and, and Ish Leggett on your team, I feel pretty good about the character of your team once those guys are leading. I don't know if Ish Leggett is ready to step into that sort of role as a freshman, nor would I expect him to be, but I feel good about if and when he's here in his last couple seasons, you know, into his sophomore year, into his junior year, into his senior year, if that's the guy that they're following, I feel pretty good about it. It's for that reason why I believe Ish Leggett should start the rest of the season. Uh, the injury to Fats Russell doesn't appear to be season-ending, uh, and, and I hope he comes back for the sake of him being able to finish out what's been uh, a really incredible career uh, where he'll go down in, in the top 10 in a lot of categories, top 15. But not only does, should he start if Fats is out, he should also start if Fats, once Fats, comes back in. 
Uh, I believe he should start and place it Allen Beatrand, and I know it, it makes you a little bit smaller there on the wing on the three spot. Um, but Ish Leggett has noticeably gotten a little bit wider, Bill. I think we can agree on that, wearing the, wearing the jersey. Now, he's a strong kid. He's a strong kid, for sure. Um, rebounds well, bigger than his size. I know he's listed at 6'2", and Beatrand's listed at 6'5", um, but plays the game fundamentally well, going back to our first point. Um, Numbers-wise, I know we like to focus on numbers. Uh, the numbers clearly give Ish the advantage over Allen. Allen, uh, since uh, starting the season uh, halfway through when he got when he got the waiver, 36% from the floor, 29% from three, not great on the defensive end, uh, slow at times, and sometimes, Bill, it feels like his points are hollow. Uh, come late in games, come during times that aren't that crucial. And on the other end, it feels like every time Ish scores, it's an important offensive put back when the team has lost the lead or the team is building on a run and he, uh, you know, in transition is able to, to, to finish through some contact to extend a run. Uh, so it just feels like those are a couple points, reasons. If I was David Cox, uh, I'd think about maybe putting Ish Leggett in, in the starting role. You also have to think about next year not having Jeremy Shepard, not having Fats Russell. Those are two guys that, that might not be in Kingston next year. Uh, because they're seniors and because they might want to pursue professional careers. Ish Leggett is a cornerstone piece. Uh, he's a guy that, similar to Jeff Doughton, has drawn comparisons to uh, the great Jeff Doughton, uh, who recently graduated last year. He's got a chance to become what Jeff did. Uh, and if I believe um, a few years ago when Jeff was a freshman, he took over the starting job sort of around this part of the season. Um, and then I go back to another press conference a few weeks ago with David Cox, and you asked the question. Cox likes to play nine, ten guys, uh, and that's it. if that's his style, that's his style. You said, "Hey, hey, Dave, how do you come up with your late game rotation? How do you settle on you know five or six or seven guys?" And he said, "Well, if everybody practices hard, we give them an opportunity in the first half. Yep. Come the second half, the guys that played well in the first half with that opportunity." That's who determines the late game rotation. Well, now if we look at it from a bigger perspective, we're eight, we're almost 20 games into this season. So Ish has had his opportunities through the first half of the season. Now we're toward the back end of the season, and arguably Ish has been the most consistent player. The sample size has been really small. He hasn't played 20, 30 minutes a game like some other players have. But in his two opportunities where he started for Fats, career-high 12 against Fordham at home a couple weeks ago, career-high 17 against VCU, against two young guards who he's going to go up against for the next couple years. He, in my opinion, has earned the right to crack the starting five for all those reasons I just mentioned. Yeah, uh, he was plus nine at Dayton. He was the only URI player uh, in the plus territory in, in uh, box plus minus in that game. Um, you know, I conveniently on Ken Palm, his numbers are, are right above Alan Beatran. They're listed one on top of the other. Uh, Leggett has a higher offensive rebounding rate, a higher defensive rebounding rate, a lower turnover rate. He shoots better from the line from two and from three. 
what else would you like him to do? <laughs> um, you know, and, and that's just that's just comparing one player to the next. Uh, you know, obviously the, this isn't a pick on Alan Beatrand. They recruited him because they feel like he has significant upside. He was an All CAA player at Towson, uh, who shot better from three than he's shown here. Who was a better scorer there than what he's shown here. Uh, who was thrown in midseason after the NCAA granted a, a blanket waiver. Uh, saying that all transfers would be eligible, uh, maybe you know if if he if they had known he was going to be eligible throughout the season, maybe they would have prepared differently from the start. You know, maybe he would have been more involved in practices. Maybe he would have gotten more minutes, you know, earlier on to to get comfortable and wouldn't sort of be shaking out uh, you know that rust now. But um, the point remains: you're, you're looking at who you are at this point. You're nine and ten overall. You're six and six in the A10. You host UMass. On Saturday at 8 p.m., a game that's going to be on ESPN2, you wonder what gives you the best chance of success. You're not only down the stretch, but going into the A-10 tournament, that, that's really your only chance to make the NCAAs. Um, you know, and it could be just putting Leggett out there and, and letting him sink or swim. Uh, you know, and you mentioned you, you would be a little small. If Fats comes back, you're, you're starting three guards who are under 6'3". Um, but other teams in the league have done it, and, and other teams, successful teams around the country ha- have done it. it it's, it's a matter of how you play, um, you know, your decisions that you make, uh, the effort that you give. And, and, and I think in those terms, um, you know, that has been or, or is right now probably your best guard group if, if you're going to play three at a time. I, I think that's fair to say. Um, you know, Maury, want to stay in the A-10 as we wrap up here. Uh, this news broke as we were finishing the podcast last week, and, and we didn't, Coity and I didn't have a chance to get to it. Uh, and that was a passing of John Chaney, um, you know, an, an icon in college basketball. Um, it's 89 years old, uh, the longtime coach at Temple, uh, the first black coach to win 500 games in Division I, uh, made five Elite Eights, with the Owls, uh, he won 14 combined championships, conference and regular season, at Temple in his career. Uh, you know, somebody who produced, you know, I think back to guys like Mark Macon and, and Eddie Jones and Aaron McKee, uh, you know, and so many great players that, that he had uh, in North Philly for, for all those years. Uh, you know, and Maury, as, as a Philly guy, I, I would imagine you've heard a lot from home over the past week. Uh, you've followed the reaction there to the death of, of John Chaney, you know, somebody who transcended the sport in that city, um, you know, somebody who was a huge part of that community uh, well beyond college basketball for, for what he did and for what he built at Temple uh, and outside the school. Um, you know, and just just a, another sad moment uh, for, the, for the sport, um, you know, and a, a, another great coach uh, who has taken his leave from us. John Thompson Jr. passed away five months ago, Bill, and, and now another legend is John Cheney. Uh, everything they've meant for college basketball, the mid-Atlantic region, um, Cheney's just the latest example of somebody who um, battled through segregation when he was young and, and the Jim Crow South and finding a way to, to play college basketball, had a terrific college and pro career, uh, built, built, you know, climbed the ladder from uh, a JV coach to a high school coach at Simon Gratz, won a national championship at the Division II level with Cheney University, uh, and then comes to Temple and has a phenomenal career. And for all the great stories you'll hear and the players he produced and the wins he had 
I know he never got over the hump to a Final Four, which I'm sure uh, remains one of his biggest regrets um, in life. He laid it all out there for his guys. Uh, you talk about somebody who, bigger than basketball, gave guys an opportunity who came from single-parent backgrounds. Maybe no parents uh, in the picture at that point. And he not only gave them a university to thrive in and a basketball team to play for, he gave them belief and he gave them hope. And I think if there's anything that, that we can take from Cheney, that's it. Um, and yeah, I mean, growing up in Philadelphia, he was the gold standard, the Big Five, the Palestra, uh, the Lee, of course, center. I mean, all the, all the great games, the battles that he had uh, with Penn and with Villanova. I mean, they were the gold standard. They were Villanova. They were, if you're a youngster out there listening to this, what Villanova is today, that was Temple uh, back in the 90s. They had all the top beat writers. Stephen A. Smith followed them uh, and a number of guys at the Inquirer back in the day. So uh, they were the team. They were the program. And he always took time for reporters um, who covered the team, whether it was conversations in his, in his office or after practice, just about life. Uh, he was always willing to give his time. And it's easy to cut a check uh, if you've got the finances, but it's it's takes a lot more thought and a lot more effort uh, to be able to give your time. And I think that is the most precious currency in our world. Uh, and he uh, was always extremely generous with that. I, I think the best way I could describe John Cheney was he was authentic, um, for good and for bad. Uh, you know, that's who he was. He was real. Um, you know, he had great moments in coaching. He had some not so great moments in coaching. Uh, he would tell you that, that those were part of the story as well. Uh, you know, everyone thinks back to the clip in the 1990s where he's in a fight with John Calipari at, at UMass, uh, after a game at UMass. Um, you know, just he, he had some of those moments. Um, you know, but I, I just think about when coaches talk about establishing culture, um, you know, who better? To model than John Cheney, uh, notorious for for the six a.m. practices because he felt like that would keep his guys from going out the night before, and you know also wouldn't interfere in their classwork. You know they could go to class after practice and go to study hall after that, and not have to worry about you know oh man I practice later in the day you know I'm going to be distracted. No, they got that work done early. Um, you know, somebody who fought against eligibility standards for athletes. You know, if you were a non-qualifier, you couldn't be a scholarship athlete. Uh, and John Cheney realized that, you know, just financially for a lot of the kids that he was recruiting, that was just unfair. You know, it was taking away opportunity from them. Um, you know, I think about the, the style of play that the Temple employed for so many years. The guard dominated that 2-3 matchup zone. Uh, you know, they were so annoying, so prickly to play against. Uh, you know, and I think that reflected the coach as well because he was, you know, he was going to be as sandpapery as, as he could in terms of, you know, advocating for his players and coaching his guys hard. Uh, you know, and it was just, it was just so. It's it's. You know, somebody like that, we don't have many people like that anymore in college basketball, in sports in general. Um, you know, so I, I think as a player, I think I would have enjoyed playing for somebody like that from the standpoint that I get the feeling you always would have known where you stood with John Cheney. And I get the feeling that he would have defended you unconditionally uh, if you were in the right. Uh, I think that you know he wasn't going to he wasn't going to make excuses for you if you had done something wrong, uh, whether it was academically or, or off the court. Um, but he if he felt like you were right and that you were just, 
and that you were battling on the side of something that you believed in, I think that would be the first guy to stand alongside you. And, and as a player, I don't think you could ask for much more than that. No, that's what you want a head coach. You want someone who's going to give you unwavering support through thick and thin. Um, and, and of all the articles and, and everything I've read and watched, one of the first things I did after hearing the news was I went, went on YouTube and listened to his 2001 Naismith Basketball Memorial Hall of Fame introductory speech. It was yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. Um, he asked John Thompson Jr. to introduce him. Cheney was a part of a class with Coach K, uh, as well as a, another player. They, they were the two coaches that went in that year. Um, but of everything I've read the last you know week, now it's been um, one from from Mike Jensen of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Just talked to a bunch of people, and they gave sort of their best John Cheney story. Sure. Uh, and just wanted to share one here from Eddie Salzberg, who was a former Temple professor. And I'm just going to read this word for word. Um, it says, in the summer of 1994, I taught intro to music at Temple. Two very tall, polite young men arrived early and introduced themselves. It was Aaron McKee and Eddie Jones. Side note, both first-round picks. Yeah. He played 14 years in the NBA. Right. These are, these are two um, really good really good NBA stars, NBA, NBA players, Temple stars. So this continues. The, the teacher said, I asked, quote, Weren't you both drafted by the NBA? They explained that they took this class during the basketball season and failed it. And Coach Cheney said they had to pass it before they left Temple. They probably didn't need those three credits, but I love the fact that their coach wouldn't let them slide. They never missed a class, and they performed well. So, I mean, if, if that little synopsis right there and that little anecdote doesn't tell you uh, who John Cheney is as a person, as a coach, as a leader, as a mentor, as a teacher, uh, then I don't know what does. So... Uh, holding guys accountable, whether you're, you know, the number one player on the team or whether you're a walk-on, he treated you the same, uh, and that's what what led to, to Temple's success. And uh, now, looking forward, Aaron McKee's the head coach at, at Temple, and, and hopefully, he can sort of instill some of those same uh, same traits that that Cheney had roaming the sidelines. I know it's a different day and age, and you can't get away with with what Cheney got away with 20, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, but hopefully, Temple can sort of. Uh, win a few here for Cheney this year and get back on track to, to what they were accustomed to and leading the A-10, being a top-10 team, uh, top-15 team annually, uh, and playing a lot of teams on the road. That was another big thing that Cheney did. He didn't yeah. care. Uh, I, I saw a, a wild list of, of the road games that he had in the regular season. And, um, you know, whether it's going to Duke, whether it's going to Michigan State, you name all the top five power, you know, power five programs. He wasn't scared. He would play anyone, anytime, any place. He loved the game, uh, loved his kids, and uh, that's what I'll remember most about John Cheney. I think that's probably the best way that anyone could be remembered or, or wish to be remembered, um, you know. And certainly, he will be missed. Uh, one of the giants uh, in college basketball, certainly in, in our lifetimes, um, you know, and certainly probably for for folks who have been around the sport for much longer than we have. Uh, you know, he he was unique, um, and and it's unlikely to be replicated. Uh, his career unlikely to be replicated by anyone um you know so rest in peace john cheney um you know a a proper legend uh, in college basketball uh maury with that we will wrap up uh this latest edition of the podcast uh we wish everyone health and and safety and a bit of entertainment as we go into a saturday with two more games uh you know women's action ramping up as well uh, with the URI Rams on a five-game winning streak uh, and playing George Mason on Friday. Uh, that's a team you'd want to keep track of as well. 
Uh, Maury, thank you as always for joining me. And uh, you know, everyone out there, stay safe. <laughs>